0: I think we've got to get good advice from people who have been there for whatever we want to do. They've been there and done it. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode and the interview with our best ever guest, I want to mention Fund That Flip because Fund That Flip is an online lender that gives you fast, convenient access to really affordable money that you need for your flip project. So if you're doing residential flips, then the main thing I imagine that you're focused on, uh, or the main two things are the deal and the money. Uh, So if you've got the deal pipeline, but you need access to cash and you want to build a reputation within a, uh, a group, that will continue to invest their dollars into your deals, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. The founder of Fund That Flip is Matt Rodak, and he's actually one of my very first guests on the show. It's episode number seven. So if you have a chance, go check that out too, familiarize yourself with Matt and what he's all about. When you're needing money and you want an online lender that provides fast, convenient access to affordable capital for your flipping projects, then fund that flips the way to go. Their team has over 200 deals under their belt and uh, you can actually, this is crazy, you can actually be approved immediately within 30 seconds once you put in your information. So go to fundthatflip.com forward slash bestever and get some money for your flipping projects. Best ever listeners, hello, hello. Uh, First off, I apologize for my voice. I have a cold and um, I'm sure you've had a cold in the past too, so... You understand where I'm coming from. And in fact, my voice is actually exponentially better than it was yesterday where I could like talk at, at a whisper. Um, it was pretty pathetic. Uh, but today is Friday and well, best ever listeners, guess what? Of course, it's Follow Along Friday. Um, I'm going to make this one short and sweet as uh, for obvious reasons um, so that I can continue to... Um, communicate verbally with people um, after this podcast, and I don't uh, totally wear out my voice. Um, but there are some interesting things that have come up since last time you and I talked uh, last Friday, which was the 1st of, of January. And um, as you uh, might remember, what I got going on is um, I'm currently, uh, we have a 155 unit apartment community under contract in Houston. We're actually doing the inspections and due diligence uh this week and next week, and the majority of it and we're in addition to that doing all due diligence also having investor conversations and that's what I want to focus our conversation around today because there are some learnings that learnings and observations that I've had um, during these conversations and uh, what what I want to specifically mention is. How to approach investor conversations because ultimately what investors want to know is, um, are you going to lose my money first and foremost? And then what type of uh, return will you get me? Um, many studies, uh, show that someone would rather uh, you Uh, Not take their five dollars, then give them five dollars. When you have something, there's uh, much more desire to keep it than there is to uh, receive something of the equivalent value, Um, and many studies have have documented that. So, since if if you'll go along with me and and um, take that as truth, then the 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 real Point is that we've got to, when we have our investor conversations, uh, talk about how to um, mitigate the risk in the investment and um, the conservative nature of the investment that we um, have. Assuming that it, at it that it is conservative, because obviously, uh, if it isn't, then there that's another conversation. So what I what I've done is I've identified different categories. Of both risk uh, mitigation that need to be addressed when you have investor conversations, as well as you know the the upside that that's that's got to be addressed as well. So here we go. Um, here are four four categories that I found both through previous deals that I've done where I've raised money, as well as this one um, where I'm raising money for it, that um, need to be addressed. So here's the risk. Uh, one is risk on the people. So uh, there's risk with the people involved in the deal, right? First and foremost, any type of deal that I invest in or that somebody invests in, in, you know, what, whatever, whether it's real estate or an in, in LLC, startup, whatever. Um, first is the background on the individuals involved, because it doesn't really matter if it's a uh, as my Australian friend would say, a cracking deal. Um, shout out to you, Reed, um, who actually, by the way, side note, uh, Reed just uh, started his new podcast, uh, Investing in U.S. Real Estate, and Aussie's Guide to Investing in U.S. Real Estate, something like that. Um, Reed Goosens is his name. Uh, and I was interviewed on the second episode. And it's actually already in the new and noteworthy section in iTunes. So go check out Reed's podcast. But um, I was... It doesn't matter with your deals if they're investing in a Kraken deal or not. I like that. Um, It really is about if you um, have the right people involved in the deal. And what what do I mean by that? How do we identify if the right people are involved? Well, first would be the track record. If they have done this before successfully, underscore successfully, then that's a start. But then also, it's who they are as people, what type of track record do you have with them as um as friends, and then what type of public track record do they have so that there's a level of accountability? you know one of the reasons why I believe crowdfunding has taken off uh to the degree that it has is there's uh there's been a lot of successful in fact uh ninety nine percent of the deals that are on crowdfunding platforms have been successful um, now i 'm not saying that will continue but that's I would say that's a true statement at least on the crowdfunding platforms i'm i'm aware of and I, I think one of the reasons why is because of public accountability that's that's involved with uh, with crowdfunding because when you fail um, or you have the exposure to a large audience and something goes down that's bad well you're accountable to a whole lot of people whereas if you come across someone who doesn't have as public of a of a um a public exposure then there when something goes down that isn't good um they might be in a silo and you might not hear Hear it, and uh, therefore, their their the the negative ramifications um, might not be as great. So, um, public accountability is important, and I think so. It's not only the trust factor, but also what type of public persona do they have, and simply can you Google Google them? You should be able to Google anybody you do business with. Um, I believe that's a red flag. Now, what I found in uh, real estate, in particular, is, and this is just just speaking speaking my personal experience um I'm not saying this is true or not but from my personal experience um I found that the older the investor is the less googleable um they are so I think that needs to be taken into account as well um the age of the uh investor uh, whenever you're looking at a deal um and if they are 50, 60 years old, then perhaps they won't have as much content or any content on them. In that case, then the referral network and the word of mouth network is is something that you've really got to take a look at. Um, Because, for example, if a deal goes bad that I do, then um, I'm a very much a public person. So there's going to be chatter about that. And um, that would be a disaster for me personally, for my business and, and for everything else. Um, so there's an, a, another layer of accountability on top of just the regular deal. And, and so when you have people who are on a more public nature, um, I think that's an advantage uh, because of the extra layer of accountability. Um, the other thing... So risk in people number one um, I said risk on people initially, but risk in people um, there's also risk in a deal so this is number two risk in the deal and this is probably the one of the more obvious ones you you've got to assess what risk factors are involved in the deal, whether it's a stabilized or a um, a value add property, whether it has um Deferred maintenance um, and to what extent is the deferred maintenance what is the historical occupancy and um, what's the economic occupancy a key distinction that i've I've learned um, through you know through my deals what type of of management was in place prior and uh, how did they screen their tenants what type of of qualifications did they have in place all those types of things so the risk in the deal is the second category that we've got to address with investors. The third thing is risk in the market, especially critical whenever there's negative things uh, happening um, from a public perception standpoint or in reality in the market. Uh, and then talking about what are the reasons why you like not only the market, but the submarket, um, and this deal as it relates to the submarket, uh, that's something that I've been talking to my investors about a lot with this 155 unit deal, uh, because a lot of people here, Houston, they think oil prices and, um, with oil prices, they think down, which they're down significantly. Um, therefore they, they look at the deal and they, you know, they, they want to talk through that. And in how I address it, I haven't had one investor say, after I talked to them about it, say, okay, no, not interested. Um, I've actually had, uh, I I think I'm batting 1,000 at this point with investor conversations, although two of them are still uh, pending. They're getting back to me on on the deal. And what I say with, with Houston is that first and foremost we're buying at a very low price per unit. We're buying at 38,000 a door when the comps are very clearly 58,000 a door. Um but that's that's the deal itself from a market standpoint. Houston will always or at least in the near near term have a an influx of of people moving there. Um, it's just where it's geographically located. There's a large number of Hispanics who are moving to Houston. And um, the industries that are, are driving the economy, one is energy, so oil. Um, but then also there's uh, petrochemical as well as other things like construction and um, health, uh, health and sciences. And then I, I talk about the actual submarket that the deal's in. And I talk about the different employers that are in the submarket and in particular employing the residents of our apartment community. And then I, I list off the five employers who are the top five for our apartment community. One is the um, airport. Um, a couple of them are our food, food processing and distribution companies. Um, one is HD supply and the other is a, a business park that's uh you know, has a variety of different businesses. And then we tie that back to, you know, where does that, where do they connect with the oil and gas industry and what would be the ripple effect? And you'll, you'll find that with, with this in particular, the ripple effect is that they're two or three levels removed from the, the, the energy industry On top of that, it's a C class community, apartment community, and the oil jobs that are being lost right now are, you know, the higher end. And again, there's a trickle down effect uh, within the oil industry, but initially they're the higher end. Those individuals aren't the ones who are living in the, the C class, they're moving out of the, the A class. If they're in an A class apartment community, they're likely have a home, but they're living in one, then they're, they're downgrading to a B class and B class go to C class, et cetera. So those are the, the type of risk assessments uh, on a market standpoint that I address. And it's important when you have a deal that you proactively address those risk assessments in the marketplace. It, the more, diversified an economy is, from a job standpoint, the better. And then the uh, more people moving to that location, moving to the city, the better. So look at the population trends, look at the job growth, unemployment, and the job diversity, and um, paint a picture uh, that's true um as well as accurate and shows you that that you're investing in the right area um both from a market standpoint and a submarket standpoint and the fourth thing is risk for the investor it's important that the investor knows uh what the risk factors are with passive investing such as uh investing in a syndicated deal there really isn't any risk however There are other things that are involved, like a capital call would would be one. Um, And everybody, every uh, syndicator might treat that capital call differently. And basically a capital call is if uh, something happens and you need money for the property and the property doesn't have the money, then where does the money come from? Does it come from the investors who invest in the deal? Does it come from an outside source? Where does the money come from? So, um that always needs to be outlined in a private placement memorandum. So, one of my investors who actually uh listens to the podcast and I've never met in person before, but he reached out to me um after hearing about my uh the 155 units and he asked to see the private placement memorandum from the previous deal that we did in Houston and he's, you know, he reviewed that. So, um looking at and sharing a private placement memorandum for investors gives them a sense of confidence um, and comfort uh, that that they know what's what's going on and what happens in certain if-then scenarios. That being said, I wouldn't offer a private placement memorandum example to an investor to look at until you are at the point where they're ready to submit their paperwork. The reason why is because it's incredibly long and intimidating. Basically, it tells you you're going to lose all of your money plus your shirt and your socks and your shoes and, and uh, sunglasses if you got them on. The private placement memorandum has in so many disclaimers. If you've ever seen one, um, it's incredible. So I, I wouldn't offer to share that just because it's, it's unnecessary reading, um, for examples, unless they ask for it. In that case, then you can, share it with them, a previous example, uh, or if you have the current one even better, but in this case, our current one's being drafted. Um, if you have the current one even better, then you can share it with them. Now, if you don't share it with them, but you still, as, as I was mentioning, you still need to address the risk for the investor, then you can bring up those scenarios. Um, you can proactively talk about um, the, the scenarios of, of what, what type of risk is involved what would happen if there are capital calls what's the re- what's the what's the uh, process and by telling both sides of the story you're going to gain so much respect and credibility with investors it will blow your mind so many investors and i know cuz i've i've been pitched deals so many investors only focus on the best case scenario that they've painted in their pro forma. And that very well might happen. And in some cases, it does. But in other cases, it doesn't. And it's important to know that they're already thinking through those risks And it's important for us as people who raise money, if you're raising money, it's important for us to proactively address those risks. We're going to gain so much more traction with investors. I know because I've seen it firsthand through raising millions of bucks um, on my deals. Now, those are the four uh, risk factors that need to be proactively addressed. So risk in people. So give them the background on you. Risk in the deal. Give them background on the deal, risk in the market and risk in the investor for the investor on the deal. Because on, on fixed, on flipping homes, it's going to be a whole nother risk factor than passively investing in single family or multifamily deals. Note buying would be another risk factor. I mean, there's all sorts of risk factors depending on the type of, of deal that, that they're investing in. Now let's talk about the good stuff. Let's talk about the returns. You'll want to first identify what does success look like in their eyes for a return um, and then see if what you've got or what you will get matches up with what they're looking for because it might not. And then if it doesn't, if they're looking for 30% return and and you're thinking there's no way I'd be able to project that, we might get it, but I'm not going to project it in my deals, then move on. Because maybe they maybe they find it in you know other ways, other type of lending, or you know out of the country investing, or whatever. However, they find it in more uh, riskier type of type of investments. So first, you you want to know what their goals are and what they what equals success to them. The other thing is talk to them about the tax advantages, if there are any. Depends on the type of investment, but the tax advantages are really important, um especially to my highest net worth investors uh, because when you buy an apartment community, then there's depreciation that's that's um that's involved with the apartment community and on paper, it shows that you're losing money, but in reality you're actually getting a check every quarter um, now eventually it's recaptured unless you do a ten thirty one exchange. Um which is a whole nother conversation, but depreciation is is a key to to syndication for what I do, but then for any other type of investor if uh if you've got that in your arsenal as a as a benefit, you might not depending on what type of investment you're working with investors on and then one question I like to ask the investor whenever we're talking is what is your what has been your favorite investment so far? and your least favorite investment so far and why. And then just listen. Listen to what they enjoy about the favorite and what they don't about the least favorite. That helps you gain a better understanding of what they're looking for and if what they're looking for matches up with what you've got or what you will have if you don't have the deal at that point. Really quickly, because my voice, as you can tell, is... (laughs) deteriorating by the second. Um, I want to mention that this show is called The Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever. On most of the episodes, I interview a guest and they give their best advice ever. So there's obviously quite a heavy focus on giving advice. Um, And one thing that that occurred to me recently is that we've got to be careful who we take advice from I found that in my life the worst advice can actually come from the people who are closest to us and it's not because they are out to get us it's it's actually the opposite it's their well-intended advice that just is is not based on experience and that's the key to getting good advice in my opinion i think we've got to get good advice from people who have been there for whatever we want to do they've been there and done it at that point i think it's okay to get advice from somebody but you know when 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 we get advice from our loved ones who know us incredibly well but they don't have experience doing what we're doing, especially as a real estate investor and entrepreneur. It's tough to really get good advice, um, at least in business, uh, I've I found. So I, I just want to mention that because there's one-, one of the best pieces of advice I've ever received um, before. You know, this was in- when I was in college, is uh, from my friend's grandpa. And he said, Joe, take all the free advice you can get and then decide what you want to do with it. And I think I think that's that's good advice. I would take it a step further and I'd say take all the free advice from the qualified people who have been there and done that, then decide what you want to do with it. I, I think that's even better advice. Um so that's just one thing I wanna mention. It's it's top of mind for me right now. I I'll I'll tell you why this is top of mind for me is I was reflecting on, you know, I've been an entrepreneur and real estate investor um, full-time for now 13, 14, 15, yeah, three years, three years now. Um, I I bought my first house in 2009, but I, I went solo and broke free from the advertising industry in December of 2012. And whenever I was talking to my family, I want to be careful not to call this person out. (laughs) When I was talking to my family, I heard from one of them that you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't go break free. You've got a job. I was making $150,000 at the time, uh, not including bonus, 150K salary, base salary. You've got youngest vice president of a New York advertising agency. Um, You've got an incredible career in advertising Stay there and then just keep investing on the side. Well, guess what? My heart wasn't in it. I didn't. I didn't care about it anymore. So I, I, I personally couldn't do it. And I know whenever I set my mind to something, it's going to happen. I'm, I have a, a ridiculous focus on things that I I want to do and that I enjoy doing that are alignment that align with my personal goals and and interests and values. And I got this advice, and it it made me pause. Maybe pause. I was like, well, shoot, maybe I should take the the road of, you know, saving up money, you know, so I'm saving up a decent amount every month. And maybe I should just do, take, you know, have this job that I don't enjoy um, and I don't care about and I, I, I hate, quite frankly. Maybe I should. Thank goodness I didn't. Thank goodness I broke free and uh, ventured out. I uh, didn't have a lot of money. Had probably more money than than uh, other people who start out. I had about fifty thousand dollars, five zero, fifty thousand. It was from a refinance that I did on a house, um, and I basically had that to, to start with, all money that I'd earned uh, through through my career. Um, none of it, you know, none of it was was given to me other than from you know just contributions through people who have helped me in my career, give advice and and support me. Uh, in emotional ways and whatever else. But financially, uh, it, it was all it was all everything I earned. So that's what I'd say about the advice thing. Really quick, lastly, spent New Year's Eve playing Cards of Humanity with uh, Colleen at some of our, uh, our our friend's house in Cincinnati. I really enjoyed that. Never played Cards of Humanity before. Uh, what a raunchy, fun game uh, that is. Uh, and... Uh, just wishing you the best 2016 I don't know why I felt like I had to (laughs) tell you about the cards I just love board games and I love games in general so maybe that's just why it stood out Um, and and I hope you have a wonderful and are having a wonderful start to 2016 Um, wish you the best ever weekend and um, I'm actually really pumped today my brother who's a lieutenant colonel in, I think I got that right Lieutenant Colonel in the army He went to West Point uh, And then he's been in the army ever since uh, He and uh, Him and his uh, wife are visiting me visiting me. So my brother and my sister-in-law Are visiting me And uh, Colleen, my girlfriend uh, So we're going to have a, a fun evening um, And uh, I need to save my voice for the rest of the evening So I can hang out with my brother So hope you have a best ever weekend And I'll talk to you tomorrow If you need money for your flipping project, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash bestever. You'll know within 30 seconds if you're approved or not to get money for your residential flip. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash bestever.